Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cosy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. they're doing is wrong. 
And that's why they keep it a secret. That's why they hide it. It's hidden. They were five hours grilling and grilling and grilling. I, I was exhausted emotionally, spiritually, and I was thinking mm. about my dead baby. Then you would have said, oh, don't right. listen to them. Satan's talking to you, he's trying to take you away from the community, from God and Yeshua. I lost everything. My daughter was in the community. My best friends were either in prison or dead. I said, stop lying to me. And I actually grabbed his shirt, held my fist up, and I said, where is she? Where is my wife? Christ has changed our hearts, and we have to turn away from sin and walk in righteousness. And all I want to do is, like, scream at these people, just run, get the fuck out of here. The beautiful Blue Mountains, an hour or so west of Sydney, are a World Heritage-listed natural wonder. They're made up of over a million hectares of lush forests, deep, jagged canyons, and spectacular architectural cliff faces. They attract thousands of tourists every day, all year round. The Blue Mountains is one of those places that also attracts an eclectic genre of inhabitants. Eccentrics, outliers, outlaws, and outcasts. In an increasingly intrusive world, the Blue Mountains is a great place to set up camp if you're chasing autonomy. In Australian true crime today, we'll be hearing about a group who've set themselves up in two communities in the mountains, Katoomba, which is right in the middle, and Picton, which is southwest of Sydney. The group is an international religious sect called the Twelve Tribes, and Walkley-nominated journalist Tim Elliott has been investigating their activities and writing about them since 2007. He's just completed the first series of a podcast about it all called Inside the Tribe, and he joins us today to talk about it. These guys are very, very adept at staying very isolated. Like they have their own little communities, usually on the fringes of cities or towns. When you go in, you're you're given a new identity, you hand over all your possessions and money, you get a new name, new clothes, new identity, quite literally a new name. You're encouraged to, over a short to medium period of time, just lose contact and cut off your friends and family, okay? So you lose that connection with the outside world. And secondly, it's in their makeup to shun the world. They don't watch TV or listen to radio. Uh, read books that aren't approved by the elders or newspapers or magazines or go to outside schools or vote. So they're very isolated. And I think this is one of the reasons they've managed to stay under the radar. They're just out of sight. You know? Yeah, but they, they work, right? They have jobs. They Oh, yeah, they, they're really adept at Yeah. They've got great, they're great business people. Yeah. I mean, they have lots of businesses. They've got bakeries, restaurants, um, catering businesses, demolition crews, uh, painting crews. They're numerically smaller than, they're very small in Sydney. They've probably only got 100 people, but around the world, there's thousands of them. And their reach is, is really, really critical. And the destruction that caused other decades here, been here since 95, mm. is just untold. Like the, the amount of people who have cycled through this group and then chewed up and come out the other side or not come out the other side. Or come out the other side missing members of their family. Yeah. Missing whole chunks of their lives. 
Where do they come from? Can you tell us about as much as you know about the beginnings of the group? I'm assuming 12 tribes is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is that? I don't know what that means. When I say that, I just know I've heard that term, but I don't know what that means specifically. And so what does that mean? How does that pertain to them? So so the way it began was with this highly charismatic, good-looking, tall, former college football star called Eugene Spreeks in Chattanooga in the States, right? In the 19, late 1960s, early 70s, Spriggs had um, just left school. He was all, all at sea about what he wanted to do. He'd, within a couple of years, he'd cycled through a number of jobs. He'd joined the army, left the army, he'd had a number of marriages. He'd also pissed off quite a few people, his friends and family, by borrowing money and not giving it back. He was in California. He found his way to California and he was on the beach and he had something of a, of a breakdown. I, I assume, heard the voice of God talking to him saying, oh, I want you to start a youth ministry, your own church. And so he went to Chattanooga back home and he started in Tennessee and he started a, a new church. It was really youth orientated. It took a lot of its um, cultural cues from the counterculture. There was none of the st- stiff, stuffy um, starchy regulations that you had in church in those days. It was very much come in, a lot of singing, rap nights, um, common food, common eating, really chilled out, uh, communal living. So people loved it and he got a lot of followers and that's how it all began. And then they started to go around the world and set up, yes, the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, have a tribe of Asher in a certain country, a tribe of, you know, all these different tribes um, all around the world, colonizing basically going to all parts of the world. You've got them, you've got the 12 tribes in England, uh, France, it didn't happen in Germany, but they were recently thrown out. Australia, America, South America, Brazil, you name it. They've really done a good job of spreading around the world. I think things got complex because in the beginning, the whole idea of his church was to strip away the accoutrements of, of modern religion. So get rid of a big fancy church and you know, the priest's robes and bells and whistles and smoke, blah, 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 candles, blah, blah, blah. He wanted to take the church right back to the first century AD when the first believers in Christ were wandering around the desert, you know, hardly any clothes, no belongings, no nothing. So he wanted to get right back to the basics. So it was a Christian fundamentalist sect to begin with, right? So it attracted people who were absolutists. They were like, yeah, we're in there and we're going to go take it right back to the beginnings. And after a while, with someone like Spriggs, who is charismatic, has a real presence, commands um, respect, the people started to follow him. They were impressed by him. His theology also was one of uncompromising strangeness in a sense, one of the central tenets, right? One of the things that says the strangest part of this group is they believe that it's their duty to raise an army of boy soldiers pure boy soldiers, 144,000 strong army that will go out um, on Armageddon and beat and go into battle with Satan, right? To raise this army, the group has to raise these boys to be totally obedient, like an army, like a fully, you know, it's got to be like a spiritual boot camp. And that's bred into their theology. So that's pretty unforgiving to begin with, right? So part of it, which is really confronting, is severe child discipline, beat their children really badly. Children in general, if they don't obey on the first command, they're, they're bashed with a rod, they're smacked with a rod, etc. 
six times each, that's one hitting. So if you get struck several times a day, you could get up to like 36, 40, 50, 60 smacks with a cane. So that's actually very Old Testament. Yeah, and after a time, I think, why did it get corrupted? Because it's a small group with a powerful person in charge who, who commands a lot of respect due to who he is. But also the theology was uh, didn't leave a lot of wriggle room for personal initiative or, or people thinking to their own. And also, as happens, you know, someone starts making up weird shit like that. Like, Jesus never said that. Raise an army of 144,000 boys who are incredibly disciplined to fight Satan on the day of... No, I know. He didn't. But funnily enough, it is it is part of the Bible, apparently. It's part of... Um, like Revelations or... Yeah, Old, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean, like Old Testament yeah. stuff. So on one hand, they're saying oh, we're going to be like, we're going to be New Testament, we're going to be like the first Christians, we're going to be like those guys who went out and took the word of Jesus. This is what I mean about how these groups tend to be so selective about from day one we're going to be these guys, but then as time rolls out they start making new rules, making up stuff, going a bit Old Testament. How does that happen? I get so interested when some guy just one night around the campfire goes, hey, you know how we're going to be like, Jesus, what if we be a bit like Abraham too? And what if we be a yeah. bit, revolu- you know, revelationy as well? Yeah, I think maybe but because it serves changing. He's a pretty capricious, well, he was, he's dead now, he died in 2021, COVID. Oh. But he's a pretty, he was a pretty capricious guy. Like he could change the rules to say everyone's going to eat with chopsticks now. There were, he could make up the rules, right, because he had absolute authority, he He was the anointed one. He was a direct pipeline, seen as a direct pipeline to God. So I guess after a time, if you if your followers, if you present yourself like that, and people start saying, "Yeah, I believe you," then you'd have to be a pretty strong character. I mean, it's like power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's never been a truer saying. If you have that sort of power over a period of decades, you can do anything you want, and it's yeah, it can go in ugly directions. Yeah, history is taught us it's hard not to so tell us about when you first noticed them when did when did they first come to your attention okay so 2008 or 7 2008 i think it was i was contacted by a guy called matthew klein who was a former member so i think i've written a story about deprogrammers that's right for the herald city morning herald next day this dude calls me up matthew klein he's got this amazing story about how he's been part of a, a cult called the 12 tribes and his story just blew me away. He'd only recently managed to get out of the group and he'd lost contact with, and he'd only managed to get out barely with his three young children. So his family kind of in one piece, but his wife had just disappeared into the cult and she's still gone. He doesn't know where she is. She doesn't keep in contact with her kids. It's, and there was something about the pathos of that story about the fact that the woman chose this cult, the mother chose this cult over her young children, the three young children. Well, this is ringing bells for us because, you know, more than once men have murdered their wives and claimed that they ran off and joined cults and left their children and left, you know, and, and we we just don't trust that story because we say, no, women don't do that. Yeah, it's such a foreign concept. And for me, I was like, okay, that's really unusual. The power of this group must be absolutely phenomenal to tear this woman away from from what is so intrinsically a part a part of her life and her being. So I pursued it from there. And then we kept in touch. And in 2012, he phoned me and said, wow, have I got an incredible story for you? 
and it was about a couple called Mark and Rose. They had just managed to get out of the group. It was 2013. They just managed to get out of the group after like over 10 years inside this cult. Their lives had been written, you know, turned upside down. They'd been part of the most horrendous mental manipulation, psychological game playing, gaslighting, physical abuse, financial abuse, double identities, all sorts of stuff they'd gone through. And the one thing Matthew said to me was, and this woman, Rose, had a baby, uh, a stillborn baby in the cult, within the cult. She wasn't offered any medical help. She gave birth to this dead baby. The baby was taken away and buried illegally in the bush on one of the cult's properties. And I said to you, and he said, there are other babies buried in the bush on this cult's properties. And I was like, what? No way. And I actually didn't believe him. I didn't actually, I thought, yeah, right. You know, this sounds so over the top. He said, there are dead babies buried all through the bush on the script. And so it took me a while to pursue the story. When I did, it turned out to be true. There are babies buried on that property, one of which has been recovered. And so this is the caliber of the weirdness that goes on and the pain and, and chaos that is inflicted by this group. It is uh, because, yeah, initially I'm thinking, well, you know, it's not against the law to join a wacky group um, and to choose the group over your family. That's not a crime, literally not a crime. But, yeah, now, now you're talking about crimes. Oh, yeah, it's a real crime. It's with the coroner's court now. So the coroner's looking into... Um, the case of this poor young baby. And also there's obviously all sorts of neglect if there's babies can die during birth. and You know, things happen, but if we're talking about multiple cases, we're starting to, to look at, hang on a minute, that's unusual, unlikely. There seems to be very high numbers of... There's very high numbers yeah. of stillbirths around the world with this group because of the diet, the diet that they're given. One of the really perplexing things, well, it's interesting. When a lot of people, when they they go to, there's a cafe in the Blue Mountains uh, called the, the Yellow Deli. Uh, the Blue Mountains just outside of Sydney here, and it's got beautiful food. And it was one of the main ways they recruited uh, people. This cult. They own these delis around the world in about twelve different countries, and they operate as fronts. People go in. They love the food. They go, "Wow, this is amazing." Interesting thing is that within the group itself. The food they get offered and they eat for the actual for the members themselves is terrible. So the Disney version of the group that the outside world sees is is the lovely delis with the lo- lovely uh, fresh home cooked food, farm grown, you know, paddock to plate kind of experience. But inside the group, it's a it's a living nightmare for them. If you are malnourished or sleep deprived, it's very difficult to use your uh, critical faculties. It's really hard to assess the situation you're in if you're malnourished and exhausted. And so this is one, it's a very common way of torturing people. You keep them awake. Um, you can't use your brain. You become an infant. Issues become very black and white. And in a cult, it's really important to see things as black and white to reduce people to a state of mental infancy. And I guess also that's that they tend to see people in terms of black and white too, don't they, in terms of with us and against us? Yes, exactly. It's real mannequin kind of thing. It's um, black and white. It makes things simple and it, it provides, it allows them to provide really simple answers to com- life's complex questions. And when it comes down to it, people, who isn't looking for simple answers? Who in a perfect world 
wouldn't like some really basic, simple answers to some really complex, perplexing, painful questions in the life. Oh, who wouldn't love to move, you know, join a group where somebody goes, oh, don't worry, I will take care of all the complex stuff. You just come and live here with your kids and hand over all the complicated stuff to me and you can work in, you work in the deli and I'll just take care of all the hard stuff. Yeah. And it's important to know, like you People, you can almost, I can almost hear listeners going, but why the hell do these people stay if they don't get enough food, they don't get enough sleep? Um, they're made to work like dogs and get mentally manipulated and physically abused. Good question. The thing is that nobody joins a cult, right? It's not like you wake up and go, I'm going to join this group called 12 Tribes, which is really exploitative and beats my children. What happens is that people, you know, they're in, Sometimes what I've found as a pattern is that the people are sort of in a in a state of flux in their life. You know, they might might have come back from overseas or something and they're just trying to reestablish their lives here like Mark and Rose were. And so they're trying to find new friends, get jobs, you know, get themselves settled. And they find this group. Uh, they come in contact with a group that says, hey, you know, we're living in harmony on this farm just outside of Sydney. We'll look after you, all your needs. All you got to do, we all live together. It's um, It's really communal. We love one another. And it seems like a good, really good out from the rat race that, that is, you know, late stage capitalism. You know, we're in this crazy spiral of chaos in this in this world. And these people offered this wonderful alternative. And people go, yeah, that sounds unreal. And then after a time, a good percentage of those people, some people go, no, wow, this is crazy and leaves. But a good percentage of those people over time find themselves getting co-opted by the group for one reason or another, and they end up staying. A big part of the the group is to report uh, to the elders on the behaviour of your partner secretly so they're to keep each other totally pure. So if you think your partner could be reporting on you and your behaviour all the time, you will make sure that at every moment during the day you stay in line, right? It also gives the church then, or the group, Ammo. It's like similar to the way Scientologists go in for their auditings. Exactly the same. People in the 12 tribes are brought before a committee of elders and auditors. The only difference is when they get audited, they are taken to town. They get absolutely smashed. Their entire character can be assessed over a five-hour period and they will be ripped to shreds. And guilt is a big part of that, uh, being made to feel guilty and responsible for uh, not only your misdemeanors, but, you know, bringing down the whole community with your poor actions, which again, ramps up the responsibility to be good and to follow the rules. Funnily enough, when Rose had her stillborn baby, she was blamed. It wasn't a case of, oh my God, this is a terrible thing that's happened. It's a tragedy for you. It was, uh, and the baby, it was, no, you have offended God in some way and this is your punishment. Oh God, I can't imagine how traumatic that experience is. You mentioned financial abuse earlier. How does one sort of get into the compound? Do, do I have to buy my way in in terms of accommodation or, you know, how does the financial component begin? You might be, in the first instance, just invited. You might meet a, a 12 tries member at, a, say, a, a cafe or a, a fair, a music festival, and they might say, hey, you know, come along and have dinner with us this Friday. So you go on a Friday night and it's really nice and it's all dolphins and rainbows and everybody's eating lovely food and all the kids are really obedient and and it seems to be kind of a little mini paradise and so you come back the, the common model is you keep on coming back every friday night and enjoying it more and more until you go hey i think i want to stay so when you say i want to stay 
the gradual thing. Part of the deal is that you give them all the money you've got. You sell up all your belongings, including your car, your clothes, anything you've got, and give the money to the group. And then uh, you essentially surrender your labor as well. All the work you do for the group, you never get paid for. It's free. So you never get paid a wage no matter how hard you work. And these guys work really hard. It's modern day slavery. They can work 10, 12, 15 hours a day in the bakeries here they have in Sydney, um, in Australia, around the world, businesses they have. So financially, they become estranged from the world as well. So if you don't have any money in the bank, if you don't have a bank account, you don't even know how to open a, a bank account online or you don't even have a phone, which of course they don't. Unbelievable. Because there's, there's not many groups these days that get away with their followers, their members not having phones in 2023. Do their kids go to schools? I mean, you, you're about to talk about the kids because in Australia, certainly, uh, I know it's different in other parts of the world, but in Australia, kids need to go to school, state-run school, right? And so these days, kids in grade three and four have got phones. And so kids are coming home going, I want a phone. That's a battle that starts very early on <laughs> uh, with Australian kids. So what's happening with these kids in Sydney? These kids are all homeschooled. They don't leave. So uh, that's not really a risk. I have heard recently that some kids are getting their hands on phones, which could be the beginning of the end. Mm. But no, traditionally, no, they're all homeschooled. They all get books that are approved by the elders. um, And that's all they read. That's all they learn. So that's part of also the, the reason people stay. Oh, yeah. How would you leave? How do you leave? You've got no money and often you don't have any clothes. People I've spoken to in the States are like, I left with these crappy hippie pants that I they, would get, they gave me to work in the fields in and that was it. I had to walk out the door, run out the door or one of them ran out in the middle of the night, jumped off the roof in one of the compounds in, in the States and I left with nothing. They're stuck. That's how it happens. There's a lot more after the break on Australian True Crime with our guest today, journalist Tim Elliott, about the 12 tribes. But please check out the show notes to this episode and our social media for links to his podcast, Inside the Tribe, and to his social media so you can keep up to date with developments in this story. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Has the group been prosecuted successfully anywhere in the world for any of these activities? Yeah, yeah, it has. In Germany, they... Germany, in Germany, it's illegal to hit your children. It's not illegal here to do that, bizarrely. Um, you can smack kids here, obviously, within reason. Um, obviously, beating a child is illegal. But in Germany, you can't smack your kids at all. And uh, an investigative journalist there did this, who we talked to in the podcast and whose story we tell. He, in his own way, I won't go too far into it, except to say he found out and he could prove that these people were beating their children relentlessly to instill total obedience into them. And he took the evidence to the police and the group got thrown out of Germany. It was really, really amazing. And they left. And the thing is now that's really interesting is they, they got prosecuted, they got thrown out, and they went to, I think, the Czech Republic, so the old Romania. That's currently in progress, all this sort of movement of the group. So the common model is that they they get prosecuted for certain crimes, whether it be another another beauty is hiding pedophiles around the world in their communities and then they find it too difficult they get the heat put on them by authorities and they leave so they left germany i think in france there are a lot of pressure as well so there have been some successful instances of them being held to account not a lot we've been looking into trying to help members here fallen members get money back from the group you know, make wage claims, but it's really hard. You know, lawyers are like, we've had lawyers look into it um, for free, pro bono, wonderful lawyers. Um, Morris Blackburn did at one stage. And they interviewed all these people. They were like, yeah, their stories are appalling. Trouble is that they all agreed that they would volunteer. And they made that decision when they were adults. The businesses paid to house them and keep them and feed them. So that complicates issues. It also... Um, complicates things that in many cases the people there's a there's a six-year limit as I understand I'm a lawyer you need to come forward relatively recently you need to have it really well documented that you were working for this or that business oh so the statute of limitations is quite short yeah yeah and so they what happens is a lot of people who come out for years they can kind of disappear into their own world trying to regain normalcy they're ashamed of what of what happened to them. They're ashamed of, of having joined. So for them, they don't have the gumption or the energy to do it because they just want to put it behind them. And so it's very hard to get people organised to, to get a case together. Is there any kind of uh, marriage? How does that work within the group? 
I'm thinking about groups where girls marry very young and things like that. What's that situation? From quite a young age, they can be, you know, in the States, I had a girl who was married at 16 and they, she had a baby at 19. But usually what happens is they get earmarked. The elders decide who's going to marry who within the community. The elders, so the elders go, okay, I think that Ishmael, you know, over there would be really well suited to Hannah, to marry Hannah. So they're putting on, put on a waiting period where they can talk to one another. They meet regularly, but the usual sexual apartheid that operates in the group where men don't talk, where boys don't talk to girls and, you know, you're not even allowed to touch them or kiss them, definitely not kiss them. It's very pure that way. They are allowed to meet with one another, talk to one another for a year. If it's all going well after a year, they'll be given consent to marry, to touch one another and finally to marry. There's a bit of a latent pressure in the group to get married and have a family because that what tends to happen is in the group, single people get the worst accommodation because they want to encourage members to have babies so they get more members. So they, couples and families get given bigger rooms, extra accommodation, all that sort of stuff. So if you're single in the group, it's like, oh, you know, you, yeah, so you're looking for someone. And yeah, the elders control all that. They, they, they will determine who marries who. Is there any cross-pollination between the, the, the tribes, I'll say? Do they communicate much between the, the countries? They send people to, to different groups to marry and stuff like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. They will send Americans over here to keep an eye on people if they think that certain members are causing trouble. I guess. Is that the home base, the American tribe? Midnight. North Carolina is the home base now. Yeah, so they move one another around a lot. One of the reasons for that is that often if they get into – if the heat comes on to – one or two members, say if a family, outside family, really wants to get in contact with a cult member and they're really insistent and they keep on showing up to the front of the cult, you know, to the doors of the cult, you know, screaming, yelling, saying, I demand to see my sister. You know, I know she's in there. You've got to show me and maybe they get the police involved or whatever. What often happens is the elders will just fly that person in the cult. They'll fly them overseas. <sighs> and then they tell the person she's not here. Your sister is no longer in Australia. And that's true. They just they shuffle people around the world to avoid authorities. That's what they're doing. People do not know where people are, and people disappear. I mean, I know I know for a fact in one of the storylines we're uh, pursuing at the moment, a very senior member knows uh, who I was talking to the other day, an American woman who got married at sixteen, had a child at nineteen on a boat without any medical care, uh, was totally neglected. She found out that some French children had some young girls who'd been sick, subsequently just disappeared off the radar. Nobody heard about them anymore. Nobody could account for them. And after a while, she was like, what happened to those young little French toddlers I met? So people go missing. And I suppose they can. If no one's reporting them missing and they're moving around the globe... Who's going to, what authority is going to take up the case, take up the cause? And if you don't, if they're moving all around the world, exactly, and they, and they get sick, uh, the group doesn't believe in going to hospital, modern medicine is a no-no. So a lot of these kids can get really serious, serious diseases and die. And they're never appropriately cared for or accounted for. I'm just thinking about when you were mentioning before about the soap factory in Canada or the farms in Picton or whatever, 
all of these things are money-making ventures. Is there sort of a system where the money gets kicked upstairs? Is the money eventually all making its way to Chattanooga? Is is that a system? Is there a sort of a tithing system? Yeah, there's a tithing system, so it does go to, to headquarters in, in um, North Carolina. Mm. Because this travel costs money, I'm sure nobody's travelling business class or whatever. But but moving people around is costing money, and yeah, and they own massive, a massive Marte, basically tea farm in Brazil, produces a lot of money. They own boats, so yes, they do have costs. Um, what happens to the money? No one really knows. We're trying to figure out figure out that. It's very opaque. Often they're they're held within discretionary trust, so you can't get in there, you can't prize it open to find out what happens to the money. We do know that money which is raised within the group for specific purposes often never makes it to those specific purposes, aren't used to those purposes. Because in one instance that we discussed in the podcast, it was the community in Brazil came under really hard times and the rest of the communities in North America were told, you know, uh, put some money aside, do whatever you can, get, you know, raise whatever money, extra money you can and send it down to, give it to us, give us the leadership and we'll send it down to Brazil. And then we talked to people in Brazil and they were like, no, we never got any extra money. They've been here since 1995 and they were introduced to Australia by this American man called Han Zarnicki, Scott Zarnicki, and his cult name became Han. And Han is now dead. He was murdered by another cult member who was extremely well known to him in the cult. So this is a case that we're currently exploring as well. He was beaten to death and burned in his house on the northern beaches. Han made the mistake of speaking out against the cult. Whether that was directly the reason he was killed, I think there were some other reasons. It's hard to explore and describe here because the kid who killed him was a minor. So we can't go too much into the details. But, yes, he's now in jail, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, but but Scott slash Hans Arnicke was the man who brought the tribe to Australia and then he turned on it, did he? He, yeah, he brought it in 95. He was part and parcel of getting it all set up, getting the taxes and status in the beginning, uh, which has since been revoked, I think, and figuring out all the labour um, ways to get around the labour laws here so that you didn't have to pay wages or tax. Mm. Um, they still don't pay any tax. And he was really instrumental in getting new recruits, new followers, and he built up the community here. And uh, But after a while, I think he got disgusted. Well, from interviews that we've done and interviews that we've seen with him, he just got disgusted with the discipline. I mean, the whole cult went off the rails here. The group went off the rails. There was severe child disciplining, beating, lying, manipulation, all of that stuff, hiding people from families. And he left. Um, he left about 10 years ago, I think. And he spoke out increasingly. He did an interview with Channel 9 in 2020 describing all of the ugly stuff that had gone on in this group and that how, how mortified he was that he'd ever introduced it here. And then he was murdered shortly after that. That's extraordinary. So was it, from your research, was the Australian group more extreme in its discipline than, say, the American group? Apparently it was. Yeah, we talked to we talked to Americans, French and um, German. Well, the Germans were pretty intense. But the Americans were like, what? You know, they came across here in these sort of cross-pollinations of members and some of them were just like, my God, you guys are nuts. 
Really? Like you're really, you've taken this a step way too far. Yeah. Apparently the Australian community was very, very uh, strictly adherent to all these really full-on child discipline rules, sexual segregation, you know, arranged marriages. All that stuff was very strictly applied here, whereas it wasn't so much in certain communities in, in the States. But the thing is with this group that because they're all over the world, you you know, and they're all isolated, yeah, I think that the uh, interpretation of the rules becomes a very sort of idiosyncratic. Like in certain areas, yeah, you'll get a group that's led by a complete fanatic nutcase in, say, Argentina or something, and he'll take it to the nth degree. And meanwhile, in, in Chattanooga or, or Hiddenite, you'll get someone who's a little bit more mellow in their interpretation and so they're cut a bit more slack. Do you have a theory as to why the Australian group went so hardcore? I mean, especially given that that Han Zanarchy was the guy who brought it here and he was freaked out by it. Was there an individual here who who was in the leadership position or? Well, he was all for it. In the beginning he said, oh, I, I'm all, I was all for it. I loved the child discipline. I thought it was great. And here's Hans Anarchy talking to A Current Affair in 2000. How did you feel about the attitudes within the 12 tribes of the severe disciplining of children? How did I feel about yeah. it? I thought it was great. At the great. time, I thought it was fantastic. Why? I thought it was... Um, Why? You can come up with an argument that says, hey, children need boundaries. They're insecure without them. And, and, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't disagree with that, but I've got a 16-month-old yeah, and yeah. I think if I were to whack her with a rod... I can tell you that she doesn't understand what yeah, I'm doing yeah, know, or why. No, no. It's more like dog training. It's you're, you're reducing them down to a, a more of a primal level. You're not reasoning. Before I had children, this was fine. I loved it. You have your own and life takes on a different flavor. And it smacking sure your own little, little human being on the bed there uh, sounds different all of a sudden. And, and it was different for you? Yeah, absolutely. Everything changes when you have children. Fascinating. Beating other people's children, fine. Yeah, yeah, fine. Until he had kids, he thought it was all fine and dandy, you know, and then, you know, you have the world changes when you have kids. So where are they at now? I mean, you've been following this group internationally for decades. Uh, So where are they at now, do you think? Now that their leader has died, I mean, that's a massive moment. And how did that change things, if at all? Who's the new leader? Good questions. So he he died of COVID 2021. By that time, he was quite old in his 80s. Some people always told me that he had divested control a lot to his wife anyway, Marsha. She has a classic story too. She was this sort of spunky Californian surfer girl turned ski bunny who met him in the Rockies when he, Rocky Mountains, when, when June was proselytizing and shell madly in love with him. She is very powerful and I think that at this stage we don't know. The whole thing is in a state of change and flux, right? We don't know who's really going to take the reins. We don't know where the money's going. Nobody knows. It's all happened really too recently. I think there's a lot of jockeying for power. Who's benefiting, I guess, the elders in every country? Are they? Is there a small group in every, within every group that's reaping the rewards here? Yeah, I guess, I, I think, yes, it's the elders who have particular, it's pretty much like animal farm, you know, we discovered, you know, everyone is equal in these groups. Some are more equal than others. Some are more equal than others. 
So you have a bit of a caste system where you have the elders who enjoy certain privileges, and that's the case all around the world. Certain elders enjoy the privileges of, say, having their own bank account or, or having their own phone account. Having good food. And normal members don't have that, none of that. So for those members, I guess, they're benefiting all the time. They have a degree of power that other people don't, and power is a reward in itself. Then it's the reality of monetary rewards, which, yeah, these guys would be at the top of the tree, would be, you know, apparently living a great lifestyle. They're buying a lot of, lots of property is being bought up in the States. They have lots of houses. In fact, they've got some really good properties in, in Australia. Last time we looked, they had about $10 or $11 million worth of, of pretty prestige property outside of Sydney. I wonder if it's like, you remember the Anne Hamilton Byrne situation here in Melbourne, where there were, uh, seems like there was a group of people who were just waiting for her to die, knowing that there was this huge property portfolio and eventually someone's going to get the spoils. So you have to wonder if there's a cynical group of people thinking, oh, seriously, if I wait around long enough, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen here? Who knows where the chips are going to fall? Exactly. I think that's a big part of it. Look, there could be a second and a third series to this thing. There's just yeah. so much to unpack. I hope so. It doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. And I, are many people reporting on it? As I say, I'd never heard about it. Not really, does it? It's, you know, that'd be like so many of these groups. In fact, after I put this out, a lot of other people contacted me and said, oh, my God, you know, there's this group that you should look into here and there. And there are a lot of them. This is just one particularly interesting one that has a particularly bizarre Brutal, fascinating, compelling story behind it. Thank you to our guest today, journalist Tim Elliott. Don't forget to check out the show notes and our social media for links to his podcast, Inside the Tribe, and to his social media so you can keep up to date. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.